Well, when the Lord brought me here three and a half years ago, uh, and I sat through a few services, I thought, I've messed up. I really did. What you just experienced is what robust theology does. When you know God, this is what happens. When you uh, have a vibrant faith and a walk with God, you can't help but sink, right? I am so blessed to be your pastor and to sit with that kind of music. Uh, music that reverberates the character of God, Amen. grips us in our affections, and moves us to love God more. That's what it's about, folks. Uh, I wish the Lord would allow the rapture to happen right then. That would have been all right with me. And I've learned something, too, that glasses and tears don't, don't mix. Y'all folks realize that? Because it gets on the lenses and I can't see. So anyway, here we go. All right, Daniel chapter 9. So we have the privilege of looking into a classic prayer in the Bible, one of the finest prayers, I would say, in the Bible, and it's been a blessing thus far. We, we really plowed some ground last week. We made it through one point. Some of you were afraid that we would not return to the outline, but you have it in front of you, and we'll do three today and three next week. The 15th, I'm going to do a contextual sermon with chapter 9. And put it in focus, the prayer with the vision, okay, on the 15th, because I'm afraid some of you will be gone. But I, I want to wait to the 22nd to preach on the 77s. Why? Because I anticipate you'll be back from spring break and in attendance on the 22nd. So that's the goal that we have. In the preface of his book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, David McIntyre writes about Dr. Andrew Bonner. And he talked about a friend that Andrew Bonner had, and here's what he said about that friend. He said, one thing that struck me in Mr. Hewiston, it seemed, one thing often struck me in Mr. Hewiston, it seemed he seemed to have no intervals of communion with God, slash no gaps. I don't know how you feel about that, but I wish that were me, Right? I used to feel when with him that it was being with one who was a vine watered every moment. And here's what he says. And so it is, so it was, that he was able to say with truth, I am better acquainted with Jesus than with any friend I have on earth. That may be the finest statement I've ever heard to drive me with a catalyst for prayer. I mean, I, I, I'm just going to tell you, my best friend on the face of this earth is my wife. But that relationship should not compare to our friendship with Christ. Jesus said it, did he not? There should be no loyalty that supersedes our loyalty and communion with Jesus. So that kind of statement, that's one of the first statements in this book. Uh, the Hidden Life of Prayer, and that's why I want all of you to try to get a copy of that book, and we'll try to make them available for you if we can find them. I'm not sure they're even in print anymore. There are two of them. David has one, and I have the other, and you're not getting either one of ours. However, we would love for you to get a chance to read it. But that's a catalyst. 
of, of communion with the Lord. And that's what I see in this prayer that Daniel gives us. God, I want it to be a catalyst for a closer walk with you. And so we're praying for just that. Now, I know I reminded you of this earlier, but we never should read Old Testament uh, terminology and or uh, stories uh, with an ear for moralistic therapeutic remedies. What do we mean by that? Well, sometimes people read Daniel and they say, well, dare to be a Daniel. So pray like Daniel, face the lion dens, uh, lion's dens of life, whatever that may be. be. Just be a Daniel. Keep in mind, Daniel knew the Lord. Okay? These are not moralistic, therapeutic stories to help you better, do better in life. You can't do these things or, or, or the way you live these things out is because you're already redeemed and saved. You're not saved by moralism. You're saved by grace through faith in, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus saves, right? Not moralism. So we, we want to always keep that in mind as we read. However, when you get down into Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, Daniel is going to be reminded that he is treasured by God. Don't you love that? That he is greatly loved of the Lord. So it is fitting that the text says he's greatly loved by the Lord that we find out what kind of man this is and what a blessing it is to read this prayer. So we have the wonderful privilege of studying this prayer. And we want to come away saying, God, help me be more disciplined. I love what Corey Ten Boom said at once. She said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. I like that. Daniel, we know all the way from chapter 1, he had an appointment with the Lord and he kept that appointment. So let's read this wonderful text again. We only spanned three or four verses last week. But let's see what the Lord has to say to us out of this incredible prayer. Again, Daniel prays with corporate solidarity to the people. He doesn't stand off aloof and say, you, you folks messed up. Daniel puts himself in the vein of being a sinner. Breaking the covenant of God. Needing the righteousness of God. Forgiveness and mercy given to him. So here's the text. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azuhirus, Ahasuerus, by descent of a Mede, descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then notice what Daniel does. I turn my face to the Lord God. Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God. I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. Uh, covenant, righteousness, faithfulness. All those words are weighty. They're, they're vitally important for us to understand. We have sinned. And we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, or our, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, notice this, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to, open, but to us open shame. As the old KJV says, 
to us uh, confusion of face. Isn't that interesting? This says open shame. The KJV says confusion of face belongs to us. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly, our Lord, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the, for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas because, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And listen to this. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I appreciate you giving attendance, attention to the word of God. Uh, what an incredible prayer. Uh, that Daniel prays before the Lord. Remember, this is going to be preparatory in Daniel's life for receiving the vision that will begin to take place in verse 24. So this is incredibly important for us. All right, let's walk through three more uh, very vital aspects of, of prayer and prayer li a prayer life. Remember the first one? It flows out of a vibrant faith and a close walk with God. Number two, prayer must be thoroughly God-centered. Now, I said that about our singing today and the songs, they reverber reverberated with the character of God. So, if we're seeking Him, doesn't it make sense that our prayers should be focused upon the God we're praying to? They should be, therefore, God-centered. 
And this prayer is filled with the character and attributes of God. If you just take a cursory reading down through the text, we won't highlight every single one of them. But notice in verse 4, he actually uses the covenant name of God first. He says, Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. Then he says, Elohim, and this is to say the one who governs and rules my life. So I'm praying to the covenant-keeping God who has established salvation for me. God owns this salvation. I call him Lord, and second to that, I'm praying to the one Elohim who rules my life. Then he says, Adonai. This speaks, or Adonai. This speaks of God's mightiness, that he is majestic and powerful. So ultimately, what Daniel is doing is recognizing the supremacy of God and his being over all things. He is the great and awesome God. So as Daniel focuses upon God in his prayer, think about this. You are my Lord, the giver of salvation. You are the one who rules my life, and you are great and mighty. That's a good way to pray, isn't it? It is. Immediately, he's focused upon the character of God. So he does that. God, who are you? Yahweh. Elohim. Adonai. And not only does he do the part of thinking about who God is, then he begins to focus upon what God does. Right? And as you go through the text, you will find out that he's consumed not only with who God is, but what God actually does. And here's what God does. He's faithful. And his track record is 100% perfect. Right? So when you go to him in prayer, you know full well who he is, but also that he has a perfect track record. As you go down through the prayer, he continues to magnify the character of God. Notice verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you. Verse 9. Compassion and forgiveness belong to you. Again, in verse 14, he speaks of that you are righteous in respect to all your deeds. Verse 15, you are redeemer and deliverer. Verse 16, he, is, he has righteous acts, he has anger, he has wrath. In verse 18, Daniel says, do all this for your great namesake. We, we, have, a, we have a disconnect as Christians and as Americans when it comes to really who is most important. You, you understand, folks, if God acts at all, he does so for his own namesake. When we look at our salvation, we think, oh, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Ultimately, God saved you for His own glory. He saved you for His great name's sake. Don't forget that. Daniel is asking God to act, but he's not asking God to act on his own behalf. He's saying, you act in the world you have made among your creatures so that your great name will be honored. That your great name will be famous. This is how Daniel prays. This is a man who knows the Lord, and he prays in this manner. Notice the very basis of Daniel's appeal is based upon who God is and what God does. If our God is not awesome and majestic and in control of all things, and, and he doesn't rule our lives, if he doesn't, then why are we praying to him at all? Right? The reason we're praying to him is because he is our God. And so Daniel not only recognizes who he is, but also what our God does. He said he set his face to the Lord. What does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it mean to set your face toward the Lord? Well, it means to commit yourself, to fasten on to. It means to submit to the Lord with your focus and your attention and your mind. Why? Because our God sovereignly rules this world. 
And then it says to seek by prayer. What is it? What does it even mean to pray? What's going on here? Well, in Hebrew, the word prayer has three different meanings. One is to call on God as a judge. Well, that's a little fearful, is it not? It means to call upon God as a judge. And Daniel knew something about the people and himself. He was a rebellious sinner. Anybody in that group? Don't look at me so spiritual. You are a sinner. Raise your hand. Everybody in here, right? And Daniel, with corporate solidarity, he understands this. He linked himself to them. He calls on the judge, or on God as judge, to correct the people so that they might be prepared for the coming release to go back to their homeland. When we pray, we really do want the judge to show up. I'm just reminding you of that. To pray means to commit yourself to the judge. You want him to show up. Why? Well, you don't want to be left in your sin. If you're left in your sin, you are eternally banished from God in a place called hell. You don't want to be left in your sin. So the greatest judgment that God could ever leave on a child is not to judge us. Because ultimately, your salvation is because God judged the Son for your sin. If God doesn't show up in judgment, we're not saved. So we need to understand that in our praying. That changes our focus, doesn't it? Uh, about, about what's really going on in life when we say, Lord, I repent. Uh, I'm broken before you because I'm a sinner. But I need you as the judge to remit my sin. I need you to remove my sin as far as the east is from the west and bury it in the deepest part of the ocean so that it's remembered no more. Second, prayer means to make one contrite. I don't know what y'all think about this, but I think our church needs to be broken over some things. We need to recognize our rebellion, our slothfulness, our lethargy before God. We come in here often thinking we got it all together, but we don't have it all together. None of us. And before the face of a holy God, we should all be broken over our sin. We ought to be broken over our sin of hearing the word of God and not responding. That's a sin, folks. When you hear what God says and you don't obey the word, we're all guilty of that. So we may be the first Baptist church of Ozark, Missouri, but we are a sinning, sinful church. And before God, we say to him uh, with, with a contrite heart, God, help us. Help us see your character and your word so that we're broken over our sin. Third, it means to settle an affair. We come before God with an attitude of repentance because there's an account That needs to be settled. Right? This is an indictment against most of our praying before God. Most of us and our praying can be reduced to asking God for what we want. Right? We rush into the presence of our Lord. And we kind of treat him like a a department store Santa Claus. And we want to enumerate the things that we think we need and want. Well, the predominant Christian culture attitude in our world, is to treat God as trite. And that we can bring Him down to our level. But I'm trying to tell you something, folks. That's not the God that Daniel approached. That's not the God that Daniel prayed to. When we enter His presence, we're entering into the presence of the One who is great and awesome and holy and just and loving and righteous and compassionate and kind. Daniel did not say to God, help me so that I can have a better and more prosperous life in the grand U.S. of A. He prayed a thoroughly 
God-centered prayer. That's what we need. A.W. Tozer, some 50 years ago, said, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Wow. I can tell you now, if you begin to pray and the thing that comes into your mind first is you, then we're in trouble. We set our face to the Lord, to our God, to the one who rules all things. That's what true prayer is. It must be completely God-centered. Number two, prayer is motivated by and based on Scripture. Don't you love this? Uh, You know, Daniel's younger, and Jeremiah is probably off the scene by this time, but his book's been written. They're, They're contemporaries, and there's some overlap. And what is Daniel doing? He's reading the Bible. I mean, that would be good for us to do, right? If you're going to have robust theology and hold the tension in Scripture to difficult things, then you've got to be a Bible student. You've got to read the Word, right? Because it was the Word of God that propelled Daniel to pray. He's studying the books. Don't you love that? Let's study the books. Let's look into the Word of God and let it fuel are praying. Daniel's a young man. He's in exile. Well, when he's brought into exile, he's a young man. And who prophesies the actual deportation of exiles? Jeremiah, correct? So he does that. And Daniel's in that first deportation somewhere around 605 B.C. So in the midst of this chapter 9, he's, in his prayer, he's studying the scroll of Jeremiah. He's pouring over the scriptures. And notice in verse 2, it is God's word that grips him. It's God's word that motivates him in his prayer. It's the basis for his prayer. And here is something else. Just take a look down through this prayer. And look at the amount of cross-references that Daniel, uh, he says statements that are actually from Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. (laughs) Just think about that for a moment. As he prays. This man is saturated in what has already been written before his time. He's saturated in the Word of God. Just peruse down through those cross-references. That's unbelievable. And there's a lot more cross-references. And there are going to be people in the New Testament and people who lived after Daniel that are hearkening back to Daniel's prayer. You'll see those cross-references as well. But his language is full of Scripture. There are, of course passages that Daniel gravitates to as he prays this prayer. Why? Because in Kings, Solomon had a dedicatory prayer and he talked about mercy. God, pour out that mercy on us. So uh, Solomon's reminded, when you find yourself in captivity and you're exiles, pray for the mercy of God. So Daniel does just that. But there are other things that motivate his prayer. He thinks about Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 40 that the Israelites are going to return under the rule of Cyrus the Great. That's in his mind. It's fueling his prayer. How about these exilic psalms when the people are headed back up to Jerusalem and going back? Those things fuel his prayer. Leviticus and Deuteronomy fuel his prayer. Why? Because of the covenant curses. Deuteronomy 24 reminds, if you, reminds us, if you obey in the covenant, I will bless you. But if you disobey... Great calamity will come upon you and I will curse you. As you read this prayer, did you not hear him say, As Moses commanded us, saying, You must keep the law of the Lord our God. Because of their covenant infidelity, God had brought this calamity. Y'all do know that God controls all things, right? 
God himself had brought the calamity because of the sins of the people. And is fueling the prayer of Daniel. Now listen, God loves it when people pray. Don't you believe that? Yet I believe God loves it more when we pray his own words back to him. You ever find your place? Uh, You ever find yourself in the place where you don't know exactly what to pray? Uh, And I know Romans 8, of course, mentions the fact that we don't know what we should pray all the time. But, but basically, the Holy Spirit of God intercepts our words that are not even uttered by our voice and corrects them and sends them to the Father. That's good news for me, right? And you, however, there's sometimes we just really don't know what to pray. Why? Because we're so limited. We're sinful on top of that. We don't know what to pray. What about just praying God's words right back to Him? Isn't that a good idea? That's the way we're supposed to pray. The greatest prayers ever uttered are found in the Word of God. We need to listen to what the Word says. Daniel learned from God's Word what to pray. He knows that righteousness belongs to the Lord. And he knows that to us is confusion of face. If there's ever a word that describes Christendom today in 2020, it's confusion. Isn't that true? I mean, how is it you got... 5,000 denominations within a 25-mile radius. I mean, you got, uh, you got this orthodox, and you got that orthodox, and you got Catholicism, and you got all these things out here. I mean, wouldn't it be a good idea if we just read the Bible? You know, I want you to understand something. This church is about God's Word. We believe that its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. You're dealing with a preacher who actually believes the Bible. And I actually believe that if there's any effectual change in you, it has to be by the Word and the Spirit. There's no lasting change apart from God's Word and the Spirit of God. That's why we're not all about the dog and pony shows. We're not trying to draw a crowd. As a matter of fact, eternally, I'm not responsible for drawing a crowd. Jesus said, I will build my church. Wow, it takes me off the hook. (laughs) The Bible says, and the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Don't you like that? God saves souls and adds them to the church. But we want to do it humanly. we got to get the numbers up so the SBC looks at the number of baptisms we have. Right? we got to have our budget up here so that we look like we're giving so much money to the cooperative program. Who cares? What's most important is that the people of God are hearing the Word of God and living the Word. I will stand accountable one day, not for putting you in the seat, but once you are in the seat, I'm responsible for caring for you like a shepherd. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Right? Are you getting this? It's the Word of God. And that's why people are of confusion of face today. They're confused because they don't know what the Bible says. And isn't it so true that sin confuses us? We're disoriented. We're disillusioned. If we're not hearkening to the voice of God and taking Him at His word and believing it, then our countenance is messed up. We have confusion of face. Folks, I've seen this at this church. No joy. No contentment. No peace, because sin is robbing you of the real joy of Christ. Why don't you just try believing the Word? Believing the Lord God. 
It's impossible to hide sin in the heart when it's manifested on your face. Right? Oh my goodness, folks. I know we've all sinned, but I just want to remind you that when there's confusion of faith, it's because we're not hearkening to the voice of God and we're not listening and obeying the Word of God. And that's what we need to do. Accepting a feel-good message and ignoring the revealed truth of God's Word only brings confusion. We don't want to do that. We want to hear what God says and we want to respond. If there was every word, again, that describes our world, I'm not talking about a lost world. they got to have resurrection. they got to be born again. I'm talking about Christians. It's confusion. Note, John Piper reminds us what an awesome quote this is. I hope you got enough ink to write it down. Where the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming, brimming with prayer. Oh, that's so true. I would actually say to you, if you're not brimming over the Bible, you're not worshiping, right? You're not praying. You don't have a close walk with God if the Word of God is not in you. So it's so important that we listen to the Word and let it fuel our praying. Okay, i got one more. You ready? Prayer must be brutally honest before the Lord. Now, if I were Daniel, I'd say, Lord, you made those Babylonians. If you wouldn't have made them suckers, we'd be all right. I mean, he doesn't even mention the Babylonians. He knows that God raised them up. Doesn't he? And God did. He raised up the Babylon. Remember? He causes nations to rise and fall and kings. He's in control of all things. He doesn't say, God, please wipe them rascals out. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't blame God. But this is what most Christians do, correct? We're good at blaming. It's very acceptable today under the guise of being honest with God to quote unquote tell him off. You better be careful. So many of these progressive Christian books that are written by the hat makers and other people seem to have this braggadocious attitude of telling God off. You will make a huge mistake if you do that. Don't forget the character of God Don't forget his attributes. You will make a huge mistake if you think you can tell God off. That's not at all what David does in the the psalm. That's not at all what Daniel is doing here. The moment you start to do this, you've forgotten who you're talking to, and you've forgotten who you are. Right? So Daniel's prayer is honest before the the Lord God. Not... uh, Daniel, his prayer of honesty was not, God, you really let me down... And if you only would have done this, that, and the other, this wouldn't have fallen apart. The honesty of the prayer puts the blame squarely in the present condition upon the people. It puts it upon us. Because God is infinite and holy and wise and and right, but we are finite sinners. And we're not in the right. Unless you've got the righteousness of Christ, right? Uh, Given to you. So, it's important. Uh, God isn't snookered by our blame shifting. You know, men, we sound a lot like Adam, don't we? Lord, you gave me that woman and she's eating me out of house and home. Right? I mean, it's the woman's fault. Lord, it's that wife you gave me. Women do not blame as much the serpent anymore. You've never heard, I don't hardly ever hear women say, well, I'm sorry. I know I'm to blame if it wasn't been for that old serpent like Eve did. But you do a better job, women, of blaming God for that Neanderthal that God has given you. Hey, 
I agree. We, we are like that. I get it. Or we say, Lord, these crazy kids you've given me. How many parents have said that? Let's testify, amen? Right? Lord, if it weren't for these kids and they push my buttons and blah, blah, blah. The reality is when you go into the presence of God, there needs to be brutal honesty. And the honesty is that we own up to our sin. Is that not what Daniel does? He, he's fessing up, as we would say in the South. And we need just that simple, raw, brutal honesty because God already knows everything about you before you ever pray. Right? Our minds have some shifty habits. They like to distort the truth. Our, vein, our brains are vain glories. They're emotional. They're immoral. Your brain will elude you. My brain often is pig-headed and weak-willed. Since your brain is so untrustworthy, uh, with a mind of its own, much of what we think is usually not quite as it seems to be. And that is so true. But God requires truth in the inner man. Not only is our, our, are our minds vain glories, but your heart is an idol factory. Is that not true? Are y'all with me? Y'all are not going. I'll start over. Right? You don't want me to do that. Trust me. Okay? David McIntyre, again, in his book, The Hidden Life of Prayer, says, check this out. I love this. The devotional writers of the Middle Ages were accustomed to distinguishing between what he would call pure intention as we pray and as we live the Christian life and right intention. I hope I can get you to understand this. Pure intention, they said, was the fruit of sanctification. In other words, this is where we're headed, right? Don't we want everything we do in the Christian life to be out of pure intention? I mean, that's really the golden fruit of sanctification. Right intention, according to the guys who lived in the Middle Ages and wrote, was the condition of sanctification. So pure intention is the fruit of sanctification. Right intention was the condition of sanctification. The former, former, pure intention, implied a trained and disciplined will. Don't you want that? Pure intention. Trained and disciplined will. The latter, right intention, is a will laid down in meek surrender to the master's feet. Mm. Now what God requires, ladies and gentlemen, is the right intention. We want to move to pure intention. But when it comes to praying and living for God, what is most important is right intention. In other words, a deliberate, resigned, joyful acceptance of His good and perfect will. Right, intentional praying recognizes the deliberate, resigned, joyful acceptance of His good and perfect will. I submit to you that it is easier to pray when we are brutally honest before the Lord and we consider our Savior's atonement on our behalf. Doesn't that make a huge difference in the way that we pray? If you just take your mind back to Gethsemane and think about Jesus Christ on his knees in that olive press, being pressed, getting ready to fulfill your and my redemption. And what does Jesus say? Do you recall it? He has this active passion to do his Father's will. And that's what we ought to have. Brutally honest. It's kind of like the phrase, Lord, I believe, now help my unbelief. Don't you love that? 
I mean, that's good theology for all of I believe. That's, I mean, that, that's right intention. Lord, I believe. Now, help my unbelief. But that's not the case with Jesus. He didn't have any unbelief. Don't get that. But listen to what he says. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, you know what it says, right? Not as I, say it, but as you will. And again, that's Matthew in Luke chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, excuse me, Luke eleven two. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Set apart as holy. Is that not what Daniel does when he prays? Set apart as in character and attributes. And then he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What an awesome prayer. So in conclusion, again, back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's think about this. It was our Lord who was troubled and who wept and he prayed. And he did so as he prepared to take on the sins of the world and bear the judgment that we deserved on his own self. To bear the, the very wrath of God. Don't you know that Daniel says that in this prayer? He says anger. He says wrath. He says righteousness. He says faithfulness. He talks about the covenant blessings of God. But when you get to Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25, they tell us that we have an intercessor in heaven. I mean, he's doing what he was doing in the garden. And he's doing it eternally for you right now. That's the way that he's praying. He's pleading our cause before our great God who keeps a gracious, glorious covenant with those he loves. Loving kindness extended to his people. So the prayers of Jesus should motivate our adoration. Should they not? They should motivate your understanding of the attributes and character of God. His prayers led to public shame in bearing your sin and mine. You understand it was his prayers that led to your forgiveness. He was praying to his Father. God help us be praying people. Now, I want to end by reminding you that when Martin Luther read the word righteousness, he usually translated it just or justice. And he didn't quite understand the ramifications of righteousness. Therefore, his soul was lost. Until he read the book of Romans that day and God began to talk about just and justifier and grace and the gift of God and salvation. So understand something about righteousness. When Daniel pleads to God for righteousness, he certainly understands that, that God is faithful to his covenant relationship. That is ultimately it. God is absolutely righteous, but he also works righteousness in people. You got to see both of those, or lest you miss the point. D Daniel's going to God on the basis of the fact that God is right and righteous, but he's also going to Him knowing that God, through His righteousness, will and can forgive. Right? That's good news because He could just remain just and never forgive a soul, but yet in loving kindness, He forgives people. So God's covenant righteousness is actually our hope of forgiveness. It is in righteousness. That's your only hope of forgiveness. Why do we talk so much about salvation and soteriology and the cross and Jesus? 
Because, folks, He became your righteousness. Let me show you, and we're done. Chapter 3 of Romans. Let me just read this text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Was Daniel not saying that? <laughs> Lord, the prophets have said it. Uh, Moses has said it. They're, they've talked about the righteousness of God, what we've just read from Daniel. Verse 22 of chapter 3, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. Lest you check, that's you. Lest you've forgotten this, that's me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. For, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, folks. And are justified by His grace. As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So God is righteous, but He acts righteously on behalf of a covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ, in order that you might be redeemed. Y'all get it? Here is the righteous God acting in righteousness to save sinners. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's enough said, right? That's plain and simple, folks. Today, whose righteousness are you standing in? If you're standing in your own righteousness... You will never enter heaven, and therefore, when you die, you will actually spend eternity in hell because your righteousness can't save you. But the righteousness of Jesus can. I hope all these things fuel your prayer. God-centeredness, right? Uh, the, the Scripture fueling our prayer, and just brutal honesty before the Lord. God, you're holy, we're not, right? Just honesty before the Lord. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for your word. Just thank you for the little lesson on righteousness that is from cover to cover in the Word of God. We're reminded the fact that you are righteous. And ultimately, what does that mean? It means that you're faithful to your covenant. It's that you are perfect and you have seen fit to reach out in a covenant relationship to people because of your great love. But Lord, there is no relationship with you apart from faith and belief in Jesus Christ and His righteousness given to our account. Lord, you turned, Lord Jesus, the wrath and anger of the Father away against our sin because you became our righteousness. You became sin for us that the very righteousness of God might be in us. We are so thankful today. Let that fuel our praying. Lord, also, if there's an individual under the sound of my voice that's lost, Maybe they've tried every denomination, every religion in the world. There's only one true God who saves sinners. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will ever come to the Father except through you. You said that. Lord Jesus, may you own your salvation and save sinners today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.